0: Welcome to ING Podcast, a production of MennoMedia's Leader Magazine. Our world is increasingly complex, fast-paced, and divided. How are people of faith bringing their best selves to the world each day? How are we leading, growing, and being as people of God? ING Podcast is a place to share insights and stories from individuals creatively engaging the present and moving into the future. On today's episode, we're joined by J.B. Miller, who will be sharing a window into his interesting life journey from conservative Mennonite
1: upbringing to a lifetime of work in financial management spaces. The leaders that, you know, that I think about, there were persons who gave me the freedom, enough space that I could fail and know that my job wasn't in jeopardy. And, and that was true throughout, whether it was in the a banking en- environment or at Everance, You know, that gave me such a sense of peace and understanding that, yeah, I need to take some risks from time to time. Otherwise, I'm not doing my job.
0: He'll be reflecting with us on what faith means in business leadership and what his personal journey of finding his identity has meant for his faith. Hello, friends. Welcome to ING Podcast. I am really excited today to be sitting down with JB Miller. Uh, JB is a member at Covenant Mennonite Fellowship in Sarasota, Florida. JB has a really interesting story, and I'm really happy to be able to share it with you today. JB, for those people who don't know you who are listening to this uh, podcast episode right now, how do you introduce yourself?
1: I generally introduce myself as uh, someone who grew up in a, a Mennonite family uh, where I've been formed by my education at both public um, schools and also at some of our Mennonite institutions. And for most of my life, I've been a, a member of a Mennonite congregation, whether it was here in Sarasota, Chicago, Indianapolis, or Goshen, Indiana, places that I've lived uh, as, an, as an adult. My story generally comes out in conversation. And that's what we're here to have today, which is perfect. I, I think a lot
0: of our listeners will have a sense of what it means when you say you grew up conservative Mennonite, but I'm guessing we also have a decent number of folks who wouldn't necessarily know what that means. Can you give some perspective into what you're talking about when you say conservative Mennonite? Are you talking about essentially growing up Amish? Or are you talking about growing up in a more modern Mennonite space with just conservative political values? How do you describe that uh, conservative Mennonite upbringing?
1: Well, my parents were reared in Amish homes. And uh, I was when I was born, they had just left the Amish church uh, only two years before that. So they had moved from the Amish church to what today would be called beachy Amish. So I was born in that, uh, in, into a home where A German, uh, Pennsylvania Dutch and uh, the German Bible was still used in the worship service. But in the early 50s, then, when I was uh, six or seven years old, they there was a church split. And my parents went and uh, went with a group that started a a congregation that affiliated with the conservative Mennonite conference. And it was in that Mm. setting then that most of my um, memories are my early years in church and, of course, through my teenage years and into my college years. So it was, it was a conservative Mennonite conference church. And at the same time, it was a very conservative church in the, in the Mennonite world. Uh, in Sarasota here, at that time, there were only four Mennonite congregations. And the congregation that I had attended was the most conservative at that particular time. I know uh, because of our conversations leading
0: up to this, that you found yourself uh, at some point in your life working in sort of finance and banking and, and wealth management spaces. That seems to me as someone who grew up in the Mennonite tradition as a bit of a leap. How did you find yourself going from that conservative Mennonite upbringing into those kinds of spaces?
1: Well, it was somewhat accidental actually at 16 years old, Uh, I convinced my parents to allow me to leave Sarasota and go to Eastern Mennonite High School as a dorm student. So a few weeks before I turned 17, my parents uh, dropped me off at Eastern Mennonite High School and I lived for a year in the dorm. And I had the idea, I had the goal then at that particular point of um, becoming a school teacher. And from Eastern Mennonite High School, I went on to Eastern Mennonite College, now university, and majored in social science with the idea that I was going to teach school. I taught school for one year and um, then decided I was going to return to Sarasota. And there, the uh, teaching jobs for history teachers and government teachers were very, very scarce. It was pretty much at the height of the Vietnam War, and a lot of men were uh, getting deferments with teaching deferments and what have you, and I was not able to find a job. So as luck would have it, my father suggested, well, why don't you, why don't you talk to someone in one of the local banks here t- in town? Maybe you'd enjoy being in, working in a bank. And so I did. Uh, thanks to my father, he uh, knew a couple of bankers in town. I was able to get an interview. Uh, I was hired as a teller. And it's one of those one of those life lessons that followed me throughout my career. I was teaching uh, at Lancaster Mennonite High School at that time. And when I got my job offer from the uh, from the bank, I was still I was still teaching at that particular time. And the job offer for a teller, the, the pay was less than what I was making at Lancaster Mennonite. At Lancaster Mennonite High School. So you can imagine, it was a a cut in pay. And here I was, I had a Bachelor of Science degree, and I was going to become a bank teller. A lot of people would have looked on and said, gosh, that really doesn't make a lot of sense. But um, it was a job. And I thought, hey, maybe this is something I'll enjoy. I'll try it for a couple of years. And uh, within a Within a couple of months, I was uh, in a management training program. The career just evolved from that. I found a career that I really, really, I really enjoyed. Accidentally fell into in some ways. (laughs) Yes, I would say that's the uh, way I would describe it. It was pretty much an accident. But that willingness to uh, take a risk and not look for a salary that you think you absolutely have to have. Uh, turned out to be a, a really, really good decision that I made. Did you feel
0: like a fish out of water growing up conservative Mennonite and finding yourself in this new kind of space? Or was there something about who you were that allowed you to adapt and 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 feel like you fit in in that, in that world?
1: Well, mom and dad in 1956, I would have been nine years old at the time, bought a small restaurant in uh, the Pinecraft area of Sarasota. And my mother managed that restaurant. Um, which was somewhat unusual for a, a conservative Mennonite woman to be managing a business like that. But my mother was was a very good business manager. Uh, and um, so in that setting, I had a lot of interaction with people other than Mennonite and, Am- and Amish folks. The one thing I wasn't aware of is that I brought a pretty strong work ethic to my job at the bank. And it was at the point when people said, oh, you know what, uh, you really work hard or you really, uh, you're really you really committed to this job uh, that I understood that maybe there was something different in my upbringing or the values that I brought to work. I don't know, but I, I felt right away like I was accepted. Mm. There were things that I didn't do uh, because of my own faith commitment uh, that other people in, at work did or after work did and so forth but for the most part I, I was I was accepted pretty much from day one in the bank, in the banking world and I felt comfortable there. Oh that's so interesting. was it um,
0: Was it that memory of your mom and your parents in the restaurant business that sort of uh, gave you an idea of what uh, leading in business spaces, uh, looked like is that h- how you would describe it uh, as you began your own sort of career?
1: My mother was absolutely influential in being sure that I could fulfill my dreams, <laughs> and it's uh, she she was a woman way beyond her uh, years as far as running a business and being successful. And allowing me to do what I was dreaming yeah. to do. That's incredible. My mother, uh, as she managed the business, I learned that um, you know you set certain goals and you set certain boundaries and for employees and so forth, and you have certain expectations uh, in the business world. And so I brought that to my work. I think it it was, it was, it was natural. It wasn't something that I thought about. Oh, I'm going to work hard today. It was just who I was. One of the funniest stories in retrospect, uh, while I was working there, uh, in my, in the first couple of months, I was, I was hired to do a particular job in the accounting department. And I was not an accounting major. I was a history major, but it was a clerk, it was a clerk position. And I was, I was being trained to, to, uh, do a certain accounting function while the person who was responsible for that was went on vacation and um wouldn't you know it the week i was he was on vacation i had an auto accident wow i was beat up pretty badly not enough to be hospitalized but i went to work the next day with all these um superficial cuts on my face uh with you know band-aids here and there. And the boss looked at me and he said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I've got (laughs) to, I've got to do this job. And uh, he (laughs) let me finish my job for the day, but he sent me home early. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Wow. It's so
0: fascinating to think about the things that we grow up with. Um, and, and sort of carry, even when we're unaware of them, I, I, my parents ran an apple orchard when I was, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, right in there. And, and I remember sort of the same thing. You know, if frost was coming, you were out in the orchard picking. If if you if you needed to do something in that kind of a, a, a business space, you did it regardless of what time of day or night it was. And I think I carried some of that into some of my early jobs too, where I'd have peers who would look at me when I'd say, yeah, I can stay late and help. Like, are you serious? Like, why would you do that? For me, I think it was just, this is who I assumed everyone was. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break now to thank our sponsors and invite you to consider sponsoring Ing Podcast. You can also play a big part in helping us spread the word about this podcast by giving our new Facebook page a like and sharing your favorite Ing Podcast episodes with friends, encouraging them to subscribe and join this movement of leading, growing, and being as people of faith. Thank you for your continued support of this podcast. In challenging times, how do we prepare for tomorrow? Invest in the path ahead with hope and sharing, love and caring, and with help from Everence. Many of us are taking it day by day, step by step. How can we make room for financial strategies and the Holy Spirit to help guide us for the longer term? Financial services for a purpose. Visit us today at everence.com.
1: You know, as we think about privilege, I just look back and I realize how how privileged I was. Here was a, a, a white male with a college degree um, working in, an, in a, a clerk position. And most of the, the I would say 90 percent of the people in the bank, maybe 95 percent of the people in the bank did not have a college degree at that time. So, you know, I realized, I realized in retrospect that I really it, I, I, I really was in a privileged position. If yeah. I had been a female, even with a college degree, I doubt that I would have been in a management program in six months. Hmm. Do you think that that was something you were conscious of at the time or, or
0: only in retrospect to you? Do I think you it was like? only in
1: retrospect. Um, again, it was just one of those things that I didn't really think a whole lot about it. I was there. I had a job uh, when the job market was pretty tight. I felt good about that. My uh, male peers that I would go to church with, uh, you know, I was working in a bank but not making a lot of money and they were out working and and doing uh, carpentry work and work like that, that paid a lot more money and they were driving much nicer cars than I was driving. But, um, I just kind of thought, well, one day this may change. Uh, you know, there's a, there's, a, there, there's a career path here sure. for me. That
0: career path eventually took you to, um, in some ways, back to your Mennonite roots, uh, where you found yourself working with Mennonite Mutual Aid. Can you talk about how that um, shift occurred in your life?
1: Yes, the uh, that shift occurred somewhat um, unexpectedly as well. In but uh, by the time I was I, I, by the time I was in my late twenties, I was beginning to serve on some some boards. I was on EMU's board uh, in my late twenties, and then in in the early 1980s, late 1970s, early 1980s, I was invited to join the the um, board of Mennonite Mutual Aid. And I became a board member there uh, in my early 30s and um, enjoyed that very much and really felt connected. Here was a, 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 an, a church agency that was looking at, um, well, their, their core business, of course, was health insurance in those days. But they were beginning to look at uh, the intersection of faith and money And um, the Mennonite Foundation at that time was really leading that particular discussion in the Mennonite Church. And uh, I really enjoyed serving on that board and uh, often wondered about how how the organization worked. And as I as I became more and more involved with the board, I learned that they really were at the leading edge of talking about stewardship and philanthropy from a faith context. And um, in 19, in 1989, then a position opened up to be the executive director of Mennonite Foundation. And after some interviewing and so forth, I was selected to take that particular position. So in 1990, I left the banking, uh, I left my banking job and, um, and joined the staff of, of Mennonite Mutual Aid. I, again, it was one of those times when, from an economic standpoint, it didn't make it a lot of sense to lo- leave the job that I was that I had in the bank because I had a a, a regional I had a senior position in the regional organization, and um, from a salary standpoint, it was a a pretty significant cut in pay. But it was one of those times when I really felt a call to a job, yeah. and uh, it seemed to be such a a good fit for me it was things that i really really was interested in and uh, the whole idea of investments with socially responsible investing and so forth and talking about philanthropy and generosity and, and topics like that so i moved to i moved there uh with what i felt was really a, a call to to serve the church in some way and i was there um, and so I jo- I joined the fa- uh, the uh, staff at Mennonite Mutual Aid in 1990.
0: Wow did you did you get that sense of call um, shaping your pathway from from those growing up years as well? Does, does that where your the the faith of your childhood comes into play? It doesn't seem especially in the banking world like people often will take a path uh, that provides them with less <laughs> compensation um, just simply because they feel called. Um, can you speak to that a little bit
1: well I was fortunate in that I was I was single I didn't have a lot of expenses and yeah. um, I you know I figured that uh, the the idea of of serving the church in some way and uh, feeling like there is something more than uh, just a, a fat salary yeah, to yeah um, there are other, other ways to enjoy life. And what had happened uh, in 89, the, the company that I was working for, which was a large regional bank at the time, they put me through a, an evaluation uh, study or a program that to, they wanted to learn a little bit more about who I was and also uh, helped me understand who, who I, who I was, uh, more, more closely. And, um, it was through, it was through that whole experience. And I got a lot of positive feedback from my, uh, supervisors and so forth through that. And, you know, with the idea that, yeah, there were, my career was destined to go beyond the Sarasota market, um, if I hung around, but there was also a a time of self-reflection for me. And I thought, do I really want to, is that really the path that I want to want to pursue? Do I really want to um, be a senior uh, manager or leader in a, in a large banking organization? Sure. It would have been, it would have been great, but I, I felt there was something more to life than, than that. And, I, and it comes from the, you know, my, my upbringing, certainly, that there are things more important than money. Uh, I think that message
0: is one that, um, that often is lost in, in, our, in our cultural moment that we're living in as well. So, JB, you, you worked in sort of uh, secular spaces and out in the real world, I guess, <laughs> and then you worked for a faith-based organization. Can you talk a little bit about the differences that you found there and what lessons that has taught you as you've moved uh, through life?
1: Uh, working in a working in a banking environment, at least the banks that I worked in, generally there was a much more direct uh, conversations about what's working and what isn't working. Uh, some people would describe it as less passive aggressive than what a church organization sometimes can be. But, uh, you know, in both cases, in in both the sec- both in the banking environment and in the church environment. I saw examples of really really solid leadership and I've thought about leadership a lot and the thing that I believe really defines a good leader is that she or he sets the course for the persons that they're responsible for and then lets and then lets them go to work mm-hmm. and throughout my career I had a number of people who, who did that. And I think it really br- it really brings the, the best out of out of people in that particular environment. Yeah. The, often a leader isn't necessarily a good product manager or um, a detailed person, and the best managers and the best leaders, I should say, often aren't um, aren't detailed person, but they can they can chart a vision, they can state a vision. And they can bring people along as they move the organization forward. The um, in in my banking environment, um, that was very very true. I just remember a couple of things in my banking environment. I was a lender for a number of years, and in my early uh, training program, I was given a I was giving I was given a loan um, approval amount that I could approve a loan without asking anybody uh, to approve it with me. And, and I made a loan, I made a obviously quite a few loans during that time. And I just remember the one, when one loan went bad, the, the man that had endorsed the note and was responsible for it simply disappeared. And I thought, Oh, my goodness, I'm going to get fired. And my, my, my supervisor uh, looked at me and when I was all nervous, and he said, What do you afraid about and I said, well I'm afraid I'm going to get fired And he said, you know what if you don't have a loan that occasionally goes bad, you're not working hard enough and, <laughs> and you know that gave me such a sense of peace and understanding that yeah I need to take some risks from time to time otherwise I'm not I'm not doing my job now I you know that can be taken to the extremes but the leaders that you know that I think about, there were persons who gave me the freedom, enough space that I could fail and know that my job wasn't in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And and that was true throughout, whether it was in the a banking in, environment or at Everance, And, um, uh, you know, there's just examples like that throughout the banking years and the MMA years as well, and uh, later Everance years. The thing, you know, that I often think about as I'm now retired is just how um, I experienced leadership in what was really the most difficult um, event for me as far as my career was concerned. For a long time, since my adolescent years, I had realized, I came to the realization that I was gay. And that came at a time when I really didn't even know what, what it was that I was experiencing. But I um, I, I carried that with me throughout my my growing up years, my adolescence and high school, college and, and on. But I also knew that even in the secular world, uh, my job would be at risk if I were if I were to come out and I really didn't have a any desire to come out. And, um, and yet it was something that I, I knew but it was a part of who I was. I moved to Goshen, Went to work for MMA, knowing this was something that uh, was a part of me, and wasn't sure how it would play out. I had decided when I moved to Goshen that I probably would never come out. At least that was in the back of my mind. And now I'm in my, you know, I'm in my 40s at that point, and there was just a lot of. I started uh, talking to a, a therapist, and I realized that there was something really missing. I was not. I was not being honest with people as to who I was, and um, I met my current. I met my partner now. My partner, uh, John Daniels. I met in while I had an apartment in Chicago f- where I would go to for the weekends. I met uh, John, and um, I realized that if I was going to come out, now would be the time to do it. But I also realized that it would mean sacrificing my job more than likely at Everance at, at MMA at that point. Th- through a lot of, of searching and, and painful time, I finally decided if I was ever going to come out, now now was the time. I had, a, I had John as my partner. I loved his family. They loved me. I thought, I've got the support network that I can do this. And um, so I decided that I was going to come out, and uh, I did that with the understand, with the expectation that I would leave. I would leave Everence. I just figured that uh, that I would be terminated on the spot. It didn't happen that way at all. Uh, there was conversation as to what the best way would be to go. And long story short, I left. I I resigned and um, it felt like it was time for me to leave. I felt it was best for the organization for me to leave at that particular point. I did not expect to come back ever to Everence. I had pretty much written off the Mennonite Church at that time. I did not expect to uh, ever be back in the Mennonite Church because of just the conversations that were going on in, in the late 90s. And I knew it was a pretty um, unsafe place to be. And mm, yeah, I left Everence. Uh, I left MMA and moved to Chicago permanently. Moved, uh, and John and I uh, began living together. And um, I expected no. I expected to uh, just chart a course in that direction. But well, I never lost contact with the president of. Um, MMA at that time, uh, who was Howard Brenneman. And I also at that time was on the Mennonite Health Services Board. And uh, we talked about whether or not I should leave the board at that time. And there was no support for me to leave. And so I I completed my 12 years of term as a Mennonite Health Services Board member, which which was an affirmation for me. And Howard uh, Brenneman, the president of MMA kept we kept in contact and within uh, six or seven months, Howard one day asked me if I'd consider do some doing some consulting work for them because they needed some work on some financial products, some product development work and i I agreed that it was something I would consider and after a couple of of days of processing that with John, I decided I was going to do that. So I began to work as a consultant at MMA and, uh, worked from Chicago, did not move back to Goshen. And, you know, I found such a graciousness with the way I was treated by Howard and the other management team at, um, and the other management team at, at Everance MMA, Um, it was, it was the most gracious, caring group that I've experienced. Wow. Certainly I can, I did not uh, have, have experienced any overt discrimination. If there was discrimination, I didn't, I wasn't smart enough to detect <laughs> it. But there was, there was certainly, there were certainly um, times when I was told, uh, you know what, uh, you're probably, it's probably best that you don't uh speak at that particular uh meeting uh and i i totally understood that uh but i you know i learned at that particular point that um i could i could survive in this and i could survive in that environment and not only survive but i could thrive in that environment and i again it was it was a sense of this is something that i was called to do and i had helped um, i had led the development of In 1994, I had led the development of the uh, Praxis Mutual Funds, and um, I was very very pleased with the launch of that and the work at that and so forth. And the next thing that Howard asked me to work on was the development of a trust company, the Everance Trust Company. So that was one of my first major projects when I came back as a consultant. And I was not on the payroll for for a number of years, but eventually, then I rejoined Everence as a as a full time employee. But it was it was in that context that I I experienced the church. You know, Howard had this phrase that he would say, you know, be the best of business and the best of church, and that's really what I experienced at Everence. the 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 broader denomination was not um, was not friendly. I know that. And I know they took a lot of heat for, they took some heat for even having me around. I mean, I was in a meeting one time where a, uh, a, a person in the meeting said that, well, if if gay, this is before I was out. Um, if if gay people get, the, get AIDS, it's exactly what they deserve. And there was a, a, a denominational leader in that meeting and he never opened his mouth. I knew at that point that this was not a, this was not a denomination that that would give me any cover, uh, would not give me any grace. but I found a grace filled organization in Everett's. It's
0: amazing to sort of, um, you know, consider returning to a place with some hesitancy and uh, finding both that your assumptions are true, that there is still spaces like that where you, you cannot fully occupy, and also that you can sort of live, and, and somewhat redeem your understanding of the church in that way. That both, that both of those things could be true in the same space.
1: <laughs> exactly. And you know, uh, the, um, when I went back to Everence, uh, when I went back uh, as a consultant, I had had, you know, I left MMA with an office, um, a pretty nice office. When I went back, Now, granted, I was I was not there full time in the Goshen office. But whenever I went back to Goshen in the early years, I shared a cubicle with another guy. You just have to bury your pride at some particular point and say, oh, this is okay." You know, I would (laughs) walk by the room where the management team was met, where I meeting where I used to be a part of. I was low man on the totem pole. And uh, but, you know it worked out great. It doesn't always, I guess, it's sort of an amazing story. (laughs) It doesn't always, it It doesn't always. And, but one of the values my dad instilled in me was a was the value of, of don't let bitterness seep into your, into your mind because you're the only, you're the, you will be the victim in that particular scenario. Mm. And, uh, I was living in Chicago. I had a partner with a very, very supportive family. Um, and life was very, life has been very good. John grew up in a family of uh, his father is a career, was a career military officer. And um, I had no idea what my welcome into the family would be with, with that as a pacifist. But I, um, the amazing thing, you know, here's here's the the irony of all of this. I moved to Chicago thinking I was probably never going to be back in the Mennonite church. But within three years, we were attending a Mennonite congregation in Chicago <laughs> and we joined the Mennonite. We, we joined a congregation that was in good standing um, in the Mennonite church through a central district conference affiliation. I rejoined. John became a Mennonite on the very same Sunday. <laughs> and I told people I didn't expect this to happen in 15 years. So there again, there was this, this, uh, this refuge that we found in the, in the city. I don't know, maybe
0: says something about the, the depth of value, um, you know, in a theological tradition uh, that you grew up in, to, to be able to glean from that, even as a, an out gay man. Um, to glean from a conservative upbringing that would have rejected you. But to to pull from that, which allows you to find, uh, refine this home again, I think is just such a beautiful story. I'm curious if you can speak a little bit to your faith journey through that time. Like what, what must it have been like to grow up um, in this context with certain kinds of values to to make these discoveries about who you were as a human being and to try and make sense of that faith as you
1: continue to move through the world? (laughs) Well, you know, uh, the the thing about, for me, being gay uh, was I never felt unworthy. Well, I would sit through sermons sometimes where uh, ministers would preach against homosexuality and a, and a, and quote unquote the gay lifestyle. Yeah, I've never understood exactly what that means, but nevertheless, I would sit through these sermons with these harangues about how evil uh, homosexuals and gay people were, and and I never it never took with me. Uh huh. Um, and and people will ask me, well, why didn't it? i and I will say, well, you know, I grew up in the context where we would hear I would hear sermons as a kid that. Wearing a necktie uh, was bad, uh-huh. or yeah. not wearing the plain coat was bad, or women cut hair was sin. And, you know, there were the list of sins for conservative Mennonites as a kid growing up was so long. And by the time I got to the point where I realized that I was gay and would eventually come out, I might eventually come out, this was, I just figured, you know What? The church may change on this as well. They had changed on cut hair. They had changed on divorce and remarriage. Who's to say they're not going to change their mind about, about um, homosexuality?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And, it, you know, this whole thing of of, of, being, of feeling unworthy, uh, did I feel um, under attack sometime? Absolutely. But I never felt unworthy. Is that
0: helpful? <laughs> I think that's really helpful. I mean I think you're getting down to a deeper truth there right that we, we spend a lot of the time in the church wrestling with sort of surface level debates um, forgetting about some of the deeper values that we all hold on to and know to be to be truer in a sense um, uh, because it's easier to, to sort of be nitpicky about the surf, surface stuff. Right. It's harder to sort of to go deeper and to say, what are the things that we can all hold dear? And um, in some ways, it's easier to point to the things that separate us than uh, than it is to figure out what it is that that might unite us. And, uh, And I think you're getting at something here with your own lived experience. Um, I'm wondering, given all that you've been through, your your relationship with the church has changed over time. Do you spend much time imagining what the church, and I'll use a sort of big C church here, not just the Mennonite church, but do you spend much time imagining what the church will look like moving into the fu- into the future? Do you have a, a sort of picture of what uh, faith spaces might be for future generations?
1: Well, I probably had a better idea of it before the pandemic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what will really be interesting will will be to see what happens to congregations when we, if there's a vaccine and we return to some semblance of pre-pandemic normalcy. Yeah. Um, will You know, will people return to the the traditional church, the Sunday morning group? Will they come back? Uh, I hear more and more people saying, uh, I hear two things. I am really tired of Zoom church. That's the one thing I hear, and I am too. Um, But I also hear people say, gosh, it's pretty nice sitting here in my pajamas or my bathrobe. Uh, looking, uh, listening to the sermon, and and so forth. But I, I have a I have a lot of of optimism for the church if they can build congregations around community. I think there is a real need for churches that understand what it means to be a faith community, to care for each other, yeah. um, to look out for each other. I, th- I see that here in my own neighborhood where we live, a sense of people talk about, oh, this is a great neighborhood. We, li- we look out for each other. We-, we take care of each other. If someone's sick, they're bringing in food, doing those kinds of things. Uh, if the church can, can continue or begin to do those kinds of things and, and bring people in who feel alienated in society— Uh, I think there's a a really good chance that uh, the church can be revitalized and hopefully the Mennonite church can can be revitalized and grow again as well. I love that. Uh, (laughs) I will just share one of my favorite one of my favorite sayings, because I think it's so apropos for the space that we're in today with the the political environment and also the church uh, environment. And the, the quote is, um, where I stand determines what I see. Mm. And um, I just try to remember that, that every, every day, that when I get in conversations with people who see the world differently, are, are they standing at the same place where I am or um, are they standing somewhere else? And we need, to, we need to continue to talk to people who are standing At places that are different than ours, and I'm part of a of a neighborhood men's group here, uh, of about eight men, all retired. Uh, Six of the eight are staunch, I would say, strong Republicans. Two of us are uh, they would consider liberal and democratic. But being a part of that particular group allows me to look at where people who are not necessarily uh, bringing any faith commitment to the conversations, but yet they see the world really differently and we we have a level of respect for each other and a, a caring for each other that I've grown tremendously just in the times that I've spent with these men. Well, JB, thank you so much for oh, for sharing these stories, for holding
0: um, this vulnerable space with us today. We really, really appreciate all that you have offered and my hope is that your story will continue to transform the lives of the people who hear it.
1: Well, thank you very much, Ben, for um, giving me this opportunity. As
0: always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who continue to support ING Podcast. We'd like to thank Everence, a faith-based financial services organization, for their ongoing support of ING Podcast. If you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review and share the podcast with your friends. Do you have a topic or someone you think should be interviewed on ING Podcast? Let us know by emailing theingg at menomedia.org. Views and opinions expressed on ING Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menomedia. Today's show is produced by me, Ben Weidman. ING Podcast is a production of Menomedia, a nonprofit publisher, that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org.